So Nehemiah, um, start of chapter 11. Now the leaders out of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem, but in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. Of the sons of Judah, Athiah, the son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shephatiah, son of Mahalel, of the sons of Perez, and Masiah, the son of Baruch, son of Colhazer, son of Haziah, son of Adiah, son of Joarib, son of Zechariah, son of the Shilonite. All of the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. Now we we'll skip to chapter 12, 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Mishalem, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests, sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azrael, Melalai, Gilalai, Mai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went up to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshanah, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both of the choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests, Eliakim, Masiah, Mini Amin, Mikakiah, Elioi, Anai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets. And Masiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, uh, Jehohanan, Melchijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And come with me now to Revelation 21, start at verse 9. 
should be familiar to us. Um, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the, full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring, it into, bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is God's word to us today. Good morning, everyone. It's so great to finally be here with you. Thank you so much for welcoming Maggie and I uh, to your church. It's a real privilege uh, to be coming here and to serve as your pastor. Um, hello also to those who are joining us downstairs and also on the live stream as well. It's good to have you joining us too. Uh, I'm going to pray for us as we open God's words. Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word to us this morning. Father, we pray that as you speak to us through your word, that you might uh, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe. Father, please uh, help us to see Christ more clearly as we come to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. It'd be good if you have your Bibles open to Nehemiah. I'm going to turn to there now. And I want to begin with a question. The question is, how do you feel when you hear some news that's worth celebrating? How do you feel when you hear some news that's worth celebrating? Uh, many of us, I imagine, love to celebrate. 
Uh, we take as many opportunities as we can to throw a party or write up a congratulatory uh, Instagram post or maybe even do a little celebratory dance. Um, our sporting heroes have perfected the art of celebrations. You have uh, the Greg Inglis Goanna walk when he scores a try. Uh, you've got the Usain Bolt lightning bolt sort of dab type thing. Uh, you've got the Tim Cahill corner flag boxing match whenever he scores a goal. And of course, the iconic Cristiano, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo Sioux gold celebration where he jumps up and just like, yeah. Uh, but of course, we celebrate more than just sporting victories. We throw parties for birthdays. Uh, we, we throw parties for new births, for housewarmings, for Christmas, for New Year's, Australia Day, end of financial year. Uh, we hold... <laughs> accountants. Uh, we, hold, we hold ceremonies for awards, for graduations, uh, for weddings, uh, for gaining citizenship. And it feels like whatever cultural background you have, all celebrations must involve food. And for many Asians, there is no greater celebratory feast than the family reunion dinner on Lunar New Year Eve, which, of course, uh, for many of us, happened last night. Um, I read somewhere on the internet that Lunar New Year is when the world experiences the largest annual migration of humans. Uh, billions, billions of people return to their home uh, hometowns, airfares skyrocket, traffic is crazy. Now, for someone like me who grew up in Australia, uh, it wasn't until I was visiting family in Malaysia during the Lunar New Year that I realized how big of a deal Lunar New Year is. Uh, if you're Aussie uh, or you grew up in Australia, you have no idea what it's like to be in Asia for this time, then let me tell you that Lunar New Year is basically like having Christmas, New Year's, Australia Day, and everyone's birthdays in your family and each of their housewarmings all combined into one epic celebration that can last literally for weeks. Uh, and Maggie and I, uh, I think she is as well, uh, we're still in a food coma from our dinner last night. <laughs> Uh, the food was amazing, and we had a lovely time celebrating uh, the Lunar New Year with our family. Uh, but last night also reminded me that sometimes it can be hard to celebrate. As many of you know, I've recently moved up to Brisbane from Sydney, um, and last night, uh, not only did I find, uh, come across my first cane toad, uh, <laughs> that was an experience, uh, but it was also the first time that I wasn't with my own family for New Year's Eve reunion dinner. And I know that many of you would feel the same way because you're separated from your families, uh, whether that's because they're interstate or overseas or uh, they're unwell or maybe you're no longer in contact or they're no longer with us in this world. See, many of us love to celebrate, but sometimes our celebrations are muted or bittersweet. Uh, it, it might be because we're trying to be sensitive towards those who might feel discouraged or hurt by our celebrations. Kind of like how when a footballer scores a goal against their uh, previous team, they'll just refrain from celebrating. Like, no, no, no. Or it might be because there is some barrier to our participating in celebration. Like how someone who might be feeling a depressive low uh, might not be able to feel the same joy as everyone else who is celebrating. As we come to Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12, 
Uh, we're at the point of the story where everything is wrapping up following, following the climactic events of uh, the last three weeks. So in Nehemiah chapters 8 to 10, we saw that upon completing the rebuilding of the war, God's people dive deep into God's word. They make a public and corporate confession of their sins, both past and present, and they commit to a life of wholesale repentance and worship of God. And normally what happens after, uh, when you're sort of watching a movie of this or something, is you see a montage of where all the characters have ended up with their lives after the climax of the story. So Frodo returns to the Shire. The Avengers mourn Tony Stark. Astrid Leong leaves her insecure husband while Nick and Rachel throw a party on top of Marina Bay Sands to celebrate their engagement. It's the stuff that happens after all the major action and drama of the story, and it gives both the characters within the story and also gives us an opportunity, an opportunity to process and reflect what's just happened. And I think that's what's happening for us here in Nehemiah 11 and 12. It's a chance for us to take a breath, to see where the story has taken us to, uh, where everyone's ended up, and to give us a moment to either mourn or celebrate what's happened so far. And so let's jump in to our passage. Uh, And uh, our passage this morning might seem a bit intimidating at first. Um, Maggie just told me while during the Bible reading, you really drew a short straw, didn't you, with all of these names and stuff. Um, And yeah, I certainly was intimidated when I read the passage at first, preparing for this sermon. Um, But I think if we approach this text and read it with a bit of curiosity... I think uh, when we do that, this passage is a wonderful testament to God's faithfulness to his people and to his promises. Uh, And so uh, we move on to our first point, uh, the city repopulated. Now, whenever I get a huge slab of Old Testament narrative text, uh, what I like to do as I read through it is I like to take note of any key actions or events, all the sort of things that happen Uh, that indicate to us that the story has moved forward. Uh, This helps us to make sense, then, of everything else that happens in between. Uh, And it also helps us give us a bit of context for all of the different things, like, for an example, all the names that are listed. And I think the first event is signaled for us in Nehemiah 11, chapter 1. So if you read with me uh, from chapter 1, chapter 11, verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. The first big event in our passage, uh, which covers all of chapter 11 and the first half of chapter 12, is the city's repopulation. And this event provides the context for the long list of names which follows. Um, I didn't get the whole list of names to be read out. We'd still be reading if we were doing that. Uh, But I want you to cast your eyes over these verses. And as you cast your eyes over those, you'll see that it's essentially a huge database of names of people who move from their hometowns into the big city of Jerusalem. And so armed with this observation, what questions can we ask of the text to help us understand what's going on? 
Well, when I was reading this part of the passage, I came up with three questions, and you'll see them on your outline there. The three questions are, one, why is the city being repopulated? Why is the city being repopulated? Two, why is it being repopulated by these specific people? Why is it being repopulated by these people? And three, why are we being told about this repopulation? Why are we being told about this repopulation? So let's answer each of these questions uh, briefly. First, why is the city being repopulated? Now, you might be sitting there, and you might be tempted to think that it's the obvious choice for people to move to the big city. Uh, our culture values this idea of upward mobility, uh, which is our ability to increase our social or economic position uh, through the life choices that we make. Uh, what upward mobility looks like is buying a bigger house in a better suburb or studying a better degree in a better university to get a better job or a position. Or it might mean moving from a smaller town to a big city. Uh, or it might be moving from a poorer country to a wealthier country. Uh, many of us here living in Brisbane, Australia, uh, we are doing so because our parents wanted a better lifestyle and better opportunities. They wanted better upward mobility. So, of course, the Israelites would jump at the opportunity to move to Jerusalem, right? You know, that's, that's where the temple is. That's where the job opportunities are. That's where all the shopping and foodie spots featured on Instagram are. But no, that's not the case. You see, if you uh, flick back, uh, cast your eye back to Nehemiah 7, verse 4, I'll just read it out, we read that after the completion of the city war, that the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. You know, uh, you know, throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple, the city wall have been rebuilt, but the city itself, the city of Jerusalem, is desolate. It's full of ruined buildings. And so moving to Jerusalem wasn't this big step upwards in society. It was a sacrifice. You'd be leaving behind your property on which you made your living to move to a tiny house that's on the verge of collapse. But the emptiness of Jerusalem is exactly why it needs to be repopulated. You see, there's no point rebuilding a temple if there are no people around to run and maintain it. There's no point rebuilding a wall to, uh, to protect the city if there are no people around to defend it. The city is repopulated as the final step in God's plan to return his people to the place that he has chosen. And so this leads then to our second question, why is it being repopulated by these particular people? And to answer that, we need to take a look at who actually repopulates Jerusalem. And so if you turn to chapter 11, we're told in verses 1 to 2 that all the leaders of the people settle into Jerusalem. So uh, if, if you're the leader of a tribe, you're going to Jerusalem. That's a given. And then for the rest of the population, because you can't just have a city of leaders, that's just like Canberra or something. Um, <laughs> then you need, you need to populate it with the rest of the people. And so one out of ten are chosen randomly. They cast lots uh, to move to Jerusalem. 
And then the following verses are devoted towards listing, uh, listing all of these leaders who are representing these groups who move into Jerusalem. And then followed by the number of men chosen from each group to reside in Jerusalem. So to summarize, in verse 4, you have the leaders from the sons of Judah. In verse 7, those from the sons of Benjamin. Verse 10, the priests. Verse 15, the Levites. And verse 19, the gatekeepers. Uh, And we're told in verse 20 that everyone else from these uh, groups that were just mentioned remained in their towns outside of Jerusalem except for the temple servants in verse 21 who all lived on Ophel, uh, which is the hill within the city that leads up to the temple. And then uh, following uh, verse 21, there's some information about uh, those people who decided to remain outside of Jerusalem. So that's the list. That's the database. What do we make of this list? Well, firstly, notice how it's specifically those descended from Judah and Benjamin who are mentioned. Judah and Benjamin, if you're familiar with your uh, Old Testament history, it's these two particular tribes which formed the southern kingdom of Judah, the, the, the kingdom that had remained faithful to God and his covenant while their northern brothers were uh, turned to idols and were ultimately conquered by Assyria. And so it was these tribes, uh, these two tribes, that the faithful remnant would be exiled, uh, that the, those who are faithful to the covenant would be exiled to Babylon, and then would eventually return to rebuild the temple and the wall. It's interesting that this is the first and only mention of Judah and Benjamin in the whole book of Nehemiah. Every other time that Nehemiah uh, mentions God's people, they are mentioned, they are referred to as Israel. And so I think the specific mention of Judah and Benjamin as specific tribes highlights that God has preserved his faithful remnant. God has preserved his faithful remnant. Secondly, notice uh, the mix of people uh, that come back to Jerusalem. You have leaders, you have priests, and you have Levites. Their presence in Jerusalem was essential for the continuation of the temple. The leaders were needed uh, to ensure that Jerusalem and the temple remained prominent uh, in the life of God's people. The priests were needed to continue the temple sacrifices. The Levites are needed to maintain the temple and to lead its music ministries. And so we can see from this mix of people that this isn't some, this repopulation isn't some half-hearted attempt at resettling a city. Rather, this is God ensuring that his chosen place, his holy city, will continue to flourish. And finally, notice how these lists stress the continuity of the generations of people. You had X, son of Y, son of Z, son of... We see, throughout the, we see this throughout all of chapter 11. Uh, we also see this in the first half of chapter 12, where all the priests in, Nehab, in Nehemiah's time can be traced back to their ancestors at their time of the return of exile. There's a continuity. It's not just random people uh, stepping in to become these tribes or to become these priests. This is the same line of priests. This is the same line of Judahites and Benjamites that are coming into Jerusalem. This continuity provides legitimacy for the leadership of Jerusalem and for the priesthood in the temple. 
so those are the observations that we can make uh, for who exactly uh, comes into Jerusalem. And these observations help us to answer our third question, which is, why are we being told about this repopulation? Why are we being told about this repopulation? The repopulation of Jerusalem shows us that God is committed to his people and to his city. God, uh, God is a holy God. He is well within his rights to scatter his people because of their sin. And if God had decided to start over, uh, to start with a new people, to start with a new city, uh, then that would be fair enough. But God doesn't start again. He chooses uh, not to restart, but to restore. He restores his people Israel. He restores his city Jerusalem. Not because they're special in and of themselves, but because God is faithful to his covenant promises. The promises he made to Abraham, to Moses, to David, they continue on in the faithful remnant that he has restored to Jerusalem. God is not just faithful to the covenant promises he made, he is faithful to the covenant people with whom those promises are made. So that's our first big event. We see the city repopulated. And it shows us that God is faithful to his covenant promises and people. And so in response to God's faithfulness, his people respond in the second big event of the passage, which you'll see uh, in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27 onwards. So let me read verses 27 to verse 30. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals, harps and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. The second big event in this passage is the dedication of the wall. Now, when I was younger, there was a late-night radio program uh, that aired in Sydney called Love Song Dedications. I don't know if you guys had that in Brisbane. Uh, Faith is laughing because she knows what I'm talking about. Uh, what would happen is uh, people would call into the radio show uh, to request a love song to be played, and they would dedicate this song to a special someone. And the host uh, was a guy called Richard Mercer. He was also known as the love god. Um, he would read out these dedications in his iconic, deep, and sultry voice. You know, sometimes they'd be corny, sometimes a little bit cringe, sometimes even a little bit creepy. <laughs> um, for those of you who uh, don't know what this program is, maybe the modern-day equivalent is like those uh, Facebook pages, you know, the UQ or QUT love letters. Um, you know, the, it's, just, it's just 
the point of the dedication, um, as corny or as cringy as it might have been, uh, the point of the dedication was that it was meant to be this grand gesture of love, an effort to win someone's love or to show how much uh, they mean to you. Likewise, the dedication of the war in Nehemiah 12 is a grand gesture of love and thanksgiving towards God. And so the temple music ministry team pull out all the classic hits, all the old hymns, and they dedicate the war to God with songs of thanksgiving and music from all sorts of instruments. And uh, the kids helpfully situated us within those celebrations earlier in the service. And as part of these celebrations, Nehemiah splits the music team into two large choirs to give thanks. And then he directs them to march on top of the wall in opposite directions. And what follows uh, in the passage is this textual depiction of the route the choirs take. Now, an Israelite who's reading this and who has visited Jerusalem and familiar with the geography of the wall, uh, they'd be able to make perfect sense of these directions. They'd be able to visualize exactly what route these choirs took. But for us who are unfamiliar, it's tempting to just skim past this part. It's like me telling you that when you're driving off the Harbour Bridge towards North Sydney on the Warringah Freeway, make sure you don't exit to the left onto the Pacific Highway or exit right onto Military Road, but keep going straight until you take the next Pacific Highway exit, but don't actually go onto the Pacific Highway and don't take the tunnel either. (laughs) You just look at me, blank me, and ask me to show you a map. And so I brought a map. Uh, It's a little bit... It's a little bit no frills, like you saw a picture of the the Jerusalem Wall in the kids' spot. This is a bit more low-tech. I brought a map. (laughs) Now, Maggie would be the first to tell you that I love maps a little bit too much. But I think they're super interesting and super helpful for many aspects of life. And so you you take a look at this map, you see that north is this way if you're geographically inclined. Um... And you can see I drew the choirs into this map. Uh, You can see the route that these choirs take. Essentially, they both start on top of the map there, probably between the Pool of Shalal on the left there and the Valley Gate uh, where I drew the choirs. The first choir takes the bottom route, stops, uh, sort of goes around uh, up the stairs and stops somewhere near the temple, while the second choir takes the top route and stops at the gate of the guard over here. And then they give thanks uh, before they move into the temple to offer sacrifices. Now, what do we make of this manner of celebration? We don't really do that when we sing songs at church. We don't go and circumnavigate the property of the church. We're not told explicitly in the passage why they celebrated in this way. But you can imagine how significant it would have been for the people walking on the wall and for those watching on. Just imagine you're watching these two choirs uh, doing this uh, celebration. You're looking at the wall. This is the wall that not too long ago lay in ruins. And as you're watching them walk on the wall, you might remember the words of Tobiah the Ammonite who taunted them, saying that even a fox climbing the walls would cause the stones to break. And imagine uh, the look on Tobiah's face, seeing these two huge choirs and their heavy instruments marching on top of the wall. Each step 
that the choir takes confirms that the wall is strong enough to stand. Every stone they walk on, every tower and gate they march past is a reminder of God's providence. You know, it's as if that uh, this is the final inspection of your house that you just built before you hand over. And it's clear that there is no defect in sight. But notice where these celebrations end up. Where do they end up? The temple. This celebration isn't just about the walls. It's about the whole of God's plan to return his people from exile and into the rebuilt city with a rebuilt temple. The Israelites are celebrating, ultimately, God's covenant faithfulness. He has gathered his scattered people. He's brought them back to the place he has chosen, and he's reestablished his temple. And so aptly, the choir procession ends with the offering of great sacrifices in the temple. And we see this in verse 43. They rejoice because God has made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoice. The joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. That is a lot of joy. And for good reason. Because now, at last, God's name will dwell with his people once again. But, alas, Nehemiah's story doesn't end here. There's still one more chapter in Nehemiah to go, one more sermon in this series, and so I'll leave it to Ben to spoil the party next week. But even without seeing what happens in the next chapter, I think there's still a question hanging over these celebrations. Even though the temple is up and running, God's people have rededicated themselves to God's word and his covenant. Their situation is still a far cry from the new covenant promises made prior to their return from exile through the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And the question that hangs over is this. Has the covenant really been reinstated? Is this really the reality under God's new covenant? You know, uh, the answer, I think, is no. Because after the celebrations die down, the Israelites come down from the war, they adjust to their new lives, I think they'll receive a big reality check. You see, they're back in their land, back in their holy city, back in their temple, but they aren't in charge. Did you notice that in the long list of people repopulating Jerusalem, There is no mention of a king. They are still under Persian rule. They are still waiting for a king, waiting for a king from the line of David and Judah, waiting for a savior who will rescue them from the oppressive rule of the Persians and then later on from the oppressive rule of the Romans. They are still suffering from the consequences of their sin. 
But of course, we know uh, that a number of generations later, a son of David from the line of Judah enters Jerusalem. He steps within these city walls. He marches to the temple. The king finally arrives. But there is no celebration from the priests and the Levites. Instead, they offer him to be killed. Not as a great sacrifice of joy, but as a wicked act of rebellion against God. But, unbeknownst to the priests, God intended the death of Jesus to become the great sacrifice. The great sacrifice which finally inaugurates the new covenant. Jesus, the son of David, the promised king, offers himself as the sacrificial lamb. He was slain in order to take away sins. And in doing so, he becomes the saviour of Israel and indeed the saviour of the whole world. You see, the celebrations on top of the wall and the great sacrifices at the temple are the right response to God's covenant faithfulness. But they also give us a foretaste of the greater celebration and sacrifice to come in Jesus. The Israelites throw such a huge celebration that the joy of Jerusalem could be heard from far away. But those reading about the celebrations generations later uh, would yearn for the day when they can truly celebrate life under the new covenant. And so what about us? As we've taken this moment to reflect on this concluding uh, arc in the story of Nehemiah, should we be mourning or should we be celebrating? Well, I hope that as we've read this passage in light of Christ, you'll realize that we have even more reason to celebrate God's covenant faithfulness than the Israelites in Nehemiah. Because unlike the Israelites in Nehemiah's time, we are already living the reality of the new covenant. For those of us who entrust ourselves to Jesus' sacrifice, we have God's Spirit dwelling within us, enabling us to live in obedience and in worship. And so therefore, friends, we ought to celebrate. We celebrate the Lamb that was slain for the sins of the world, And so whenever you are reminded of God's covenant faithfulness to you in the gospel, don't be afraid to celebrate. Give thanks, sing praises, dance, shout for joy, go all out, live your life as a sacrifice pleasing to God. Brothers and sisters, we have the opportunity to celebrate every Sunday as we come together as God's people to proclaim the gospel and to respond in praise to God. And in fact, it's not just Sunday. We have the opportunity to celebrate every day as we orient the whole of our lives towards God and to live out our new covenant reality. But friends, at the same time, don't celebrate 
as if this is all there is. You know, it can be very easy for our celebrations to be short-sighted. We can be tempted to feel as if we are already living within the reality of the kingdom that is still yet to arrive. And I think this is particularly um, important to remember uh, because God has blessed us here in Brisbane with so much and we can easily become complacent. Which is why we need to remember that just as the celebrations in Nehemiah were a foretaste of greater celebrations to come, so also our celebrations now look forward to the heavenly celebrations that will last into eternity. And we look forward to eternity with certainty because God has been faithful. Nehemiah reminds us that he's been faithful in repopulating Jerusalem. He was faithful in rebuilding the wall. Most significantly, he was faithful in offering his one and only son as the sacrificial lamb of the new covenant. He has already accomplished the greatest of his covenant promises, which means that we can be confident that he will be faithful till the end. And we see in our reading from Revelation 21 a glimpse of that end. We see a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, its walls not made from ordinary stone, but from precious jasper. The city is not populated for the sake of defense, not for the sake, uh, for, because the gates are forever flung open. There, needs, there need not be any defense because the city basks in the safety of God's glorious light. Nor is the city populated with priests and temple workers, for there is no temple because God himself dwells within this city. Nor is the city populated only by the faithful tribes of Judah and Benjamin. No, this holy heavenly city is populated by those from every tribe and every nation because the lamb that was sacrificed for the sins of the whole world welcomes all those who have found life in him into his holy city imagine the celebrations in this city the celebrations that you too will be a part of when you are welcomed in. Brothers and sisters, how do you feel when you hear some news that's worth celebrating? You know, some of us can't get enough of celebrations. Uh, we live for celebrations. Just tell me the next party, I'll be there. If that's you, then can I say, keep celebrating. Good news should be celebrated. But as you do celebrate, be aware of why we ultimately can celebrate. We celebrate because God has been faithful to his covenant through Christ. And so keeping this in mind should help us place the appropriate amount of emphasis on our day-to-day -day celebrations. Now, I'm not saying that you should hold back from sharing good news with other people. It's good to share good news with other people so that we can all celebrate together. But if you find that what you share 
is more about subtly boasting and elevating yourself above others and less about inviting others to rejoice with you and give thanks to God, then I would suggest you ask God to work on changing your heart. On a similar note, it's also worth being aware of what you instinctively gravitate towards celebrating. Uh, in the past, uh, when I was single, um, I, had a, I wasn't dating Maggie, I would have Christian friends ask me, so Richard, is there a special lady in your life? And their excitement would die down when I answered in the negative. You see, what we gravitate towards celebrating reveals the values that we hold. When we focus on only celebrating things like weddings and babies, what does this communicate to those who are committed to being single or who are unable to have children? If you find yourself gravitating towards celebrating only particular things, then again, you might like to ask God to work on changing your heart. Some of us struggle to celebrate. You don't look forward to the next party. You loathe it. If that's you, can I encourage you to fix your eyes on Jesus, the lamb who died for sin and was raised back to life. This gospel of Jesus fixes our heart problems and gives us hope for eternal life with God. This gospel paves the way for the celebrations to come, celebrations that will be no longer marred by sin or suffering by pain or sickness or grief or death. Celebrations that instead will go on and on and on within the walls of this holy city and in the presence of our faithful God. If you struggle to celebrate, then can I encourage you to fix your eyes on the good news of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let's take every opportunity to celebrate God's covenant faithfulness to us in Christ. Let's ensure that we celebrate this good news more than we celebrate our birthdays and graduations and promotions and weddings, even more than we celebrate Lunar New Year. Let's commit to celebrating this good news by giving our lives in sacrifice. But let's also celebrate knowing that God is still at work bringing people within the walls of this holy city. And so let's celebrate knowing that we look forward to the eternal heavenly celebrations to come. Let's pray together. Gracious God, you made an eternal covenant with us through the blood of your Son and brought him back from the dead as the great shepherd of your sheep. Equip us, God, with everything good for doing your will. Work in us what is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.